trying to keep up with what what is the current usage of a term. And it's not as easy as everyone thinks it is. It's actually quite difficult uh, to keep that going. Um, all right, uh, so Acts chapter 11. So we're back in the book of Acts. Obviously, you know, as soon as we hit the book of Acts, we're going to sit in Acts for a long while. So this is our fifth Sunday in the book of Acts talking about the Holy Spirit because true, true enough, the book of Acts of the Apostles, which is the full name of the book, could be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit uh, as the Apostles follow him around. Because this is really what's going on here. And uh, Peter will, uh, in today's passage, talk to the apostles back in Jerusalem and tell them about how basically the Holy Spirit is going to surprise us in this generation. There's something happening that we, one, do not intend, and it's very clear the apostles do not want. Uh, And uh, it's very hard for us sometimes to look back on this and realize their worldview. Where are they coming from? Uh, They're coming from a reality that God, in all of his wisdom for the past 1,500 years, had primarily worked, act, revealed, and intended salvation for the people of Israel. Right? And now, all of a sudden, in a matter of weeks, the switch from Jerusalem and Judea goes to Samaria and now the uttermost parts of the world, and they're there to see it. And what they had originally thought was that we are going to go find Jews everywhere in the uttermost parts of the world. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Jews from all sorts of nations all around were in, uh, in Jerusalem for Passover. And all of these things happened. They're understanding the book of Joel, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and all these things. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes on to the Jewish church. Everyone's like, well, that makes sense. The Spirit of the Lord has been promised ever since the very beginning of the prophets and the prophet Joel. And that's why Peter quotes that on the day of Pentecost, because there's coming a day when the Spirit of the Lord will come without distinction between people, slave, free, male, female, old men, young men, doesn't matter. The Spirit will come on everyone and it will come about in that day that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Joel 2, right? And they're quoting that on the day of Pentecost and trying to wrap their heads around what exactly is happening. And so for their worldview, one of the easiest things for them to grasp is that all of a sudden God is going to send his spirit on all the Jewish church. Makes sense. And as far as for the Old Testament and the congruence that that would make between this new covenant through Christ, that made sense to the apostles. What didn't make sense to the apostles was something that was kept hidden for long ages, as the scriptures say, and that is the salvation of the Gentiles. Nobody expected it. Nobody asked for it. Nobody looked for it. And even further, nobody wanted it. They didn't want it. It wasn't that they would be overly against it. It's that they weren't open to it unless God forced it. And you can see this in the story of Cornelius that Peter is about to retell. We went through the story last week and we saw how there was so much resistance of the Jews to say, how is it that these people could have the Holy Spirit just like us? They aren't even Jews. They have to hold a meeting with all the apostles. We're about to go read that meeting and and address this reality that the Holy Spirit falls on Gentiles just the same as Jews what are we going to do about this? Is, do they have to join the Jewish people through circumcision? They have to hold an entire council in Jerusalem to just address the question, do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to follow the Messiah? Now, for those of us who know our history, the answer of that council is no. 
Absolutely not, because the Holy Spirit has showed us that he's going to go wherever he darn well pleases, and it's up to us to learn, not up to us to determine. This becomes a very difficult thing for the early church, which was entirely Jewish, to understand. Because even Jesus did not reveal to them that this was the plan. He had little whispers of it, little pieces of it, little breadcrumbs throughout his entire ministry. You see him talking to the woman in Sychar, the salvation of several people throughout many days that he spent in Sychar, in the Sumerian uh, village. You see him speaking to the Syrophoenician woman. You can even see it in the Old Testament, bits and pieces. One of the prophets was sent to Nineveh. The enemies of, of Israel said, go tell them to repent, otherwise I'm destroying their city. And no, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Oh yeah, no, this was the force that was threatening Israel. These were the enemies of Israel, the ones that eventually carried away all the ten tribes from the northern kingdom. And Jonah says, oh no, I know you're merciful and gracious, you're going to save them, I'm out. That's why he left. He wanted nothing to do with the salvation of Gentiles. That's exactly what Jonah says. If I go there and I preach this, they're going to repent, and I know you. You're gracious and you're merciful, and you're going to do it. I'm not doing that. They're our enemies. Wow. Yeah. And, right. So Jonah goes to Tarshish instead, which is over in Spain, the exact opposite direction. And God says, yeah, no, mm -mm. nope, I got a big old fish waiting for you. And uh, then he's going to barf you up on land, and I'm going to tell you the same thing, and you're going to go to Nineveh. And guess what? The entire city repented. And Jonah moat. I want nothing to do with this. I want to sit here and wait for you to call down fire from heaven when they change their minds back. And so he sits on the outskirts of the city and keeps on wishing that God would destroy it all. See, that was the attitude for a long time. But you see these whispers of things, Naaman the Hittite. You see these whispers of things, the story of Ruth, who is a Moabite woman who marries into the people of Israel and ends up in the line not only of King David, but of Jesus the Messiah. You see the story even going back to the conquest of Canaan. If you read the genealogies of Jesus, you realize that Rahab, the harlot from Jericho, ends up in the line not only of King David, but also of the Christ. Jesus is a direct descendant of a foreign woman. These, these things have been sprinkled all throughout the text, but they are not a main teaching at all. They were types and shadows of something to come. And then all of a sudden, it surprised everyone that God was going to save the Gentiles. And the operative word is, in the exact same way as he saves us. Let's go to Acts 11. The apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of the Lord. That's fine. You can tell them about the scriptures, right? So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, that's the Jews, criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men, Gentiles, and ate with them. By the way, remember, this is illegal. You can't go to their house. You can't do these things. Let me silence my phone. I apologize. Nope, that's not my phone. Somebody else's phone. A pox upon you. <laughs> You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Remember, this is not only illegal to Jewish law, this is offensive to the Jerusalem church. These aren't just Jews that are unconverted. This is straight across the board. These are Jewish Christians. You're not allowed to be sitting down with Gentiles. Why would you do that? 
Peter began to explain to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. In a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, bringing, uh, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Everything that breaks Jewish law. All the stuff, all the bad animals, the unclean animals that Peter is then told to eat. And Peter's answer, verse 8, I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing uncommon or clean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. Peter is confused by this. He says in verse 10, this happened three times. All was drawn up again into heaven. Behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me, again, audibly, one of the very few times in scripture that ever happens. Verse 12, and the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Making no distinction. Peter, one of the head apostles, had to be told to go in a very specific, miraculous way, otherwise he never would. Because there was no desire to do this. And he was instructed directly, do not make distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Don't do it. Because as we're going to find out in the book of Ephesians, Christ has broken down the dividing wall. But the apostles hadn't learned this yet. They hadn't seen this yet. And so Peter goes, it wasn't just me. I took six brothers. They also accompanied me. We entered the man's house. Verse 13. And the man told us how he had seen an angel stand in the house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you the message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. While the words were coming out of his mouth, just as on us at the beginning. So here he's speaking to all the apostles in the Jerusalem church. Everyone from the Lord's brother, James, who is the main pastor at the church in Jerusalem, all the way through John, Thaddeus, everyone, Thomas, they're all there. They're all there still meeting in Jerusalem, and the amount of people saved in Jerusalem is in the thousands, multiple thousands of Christians in Jerusalem. And here he is with all of them and expressing to them, look, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. Now here we start to go back and see there's been a thread of this. And all of a sudden when it starts happening, the apostles start looking back and going, this is actually consistent with what Jesus was doing. I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's a very important phrase. He said it back in there. Who can withhold water that these men should be baptized? Philip said the same thing to the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch says, here's water. Is there any reason I shouldn't be baptized? And Philip's like, no. I guess not. When they heard these things, they fell silent. The whole Jerusalem church. Considering how much had just changed in the week prior. Now this should teach us a significant amount about how the Holy Spirit is working in this time frame. Because he's not coming and giving direct revelation to them. He's showing them. 
He's basically dragging Peter and the rest of his, I would fully argue, bodyguards to go into the house of the Roman centurion, the occupying force who is a God-fearer, and then have them be witness, not only of what Christ had done and his words and works, but now be witness to what the Holy Spirit is doing, and that is coming upon the Gentile believers the exact same way as he came on Jewish believers. In other words, there's no distinction. And if there's no distinction with God, then the same thing must fall to us. There can't be any distinction in us. We can't look at us and say that we are Jewish Christians, so we have a much higher rung, and they're Gentiles, and so they're second-class citizens. They're second-class Christians. And he's going, the Holy Spirit told me directly not to make any distinction and just go. And then I saw that they had the exact same gift as us. They have the same baptism as us, the same Savior as us. You, you, you're hearing their entire worldview crack. Because for all of these years, the main focus has been Jerusalem and the people of Israel. Well, what did Jesus promise to the woman in Sychar, the woman at the well? And she was trying to figure out which mountain God blesses, which temple. Because the Samaritans had a temple and a mountain, Mount Gerizim. That's where they worshipped. That's where they held all of these things. Over in Jerusalem, they had their Mount Zion. And they had their temple there. And that's where they worshipped. And it was the first question when she learned that he was the Messiah. Which mountain is correct? Solve the question of the past 600 years. Which mountain is right? And Jesus is like, oh. (laughs) It's like, there's coming a time where neither on that mountain or this mountain. But only those who worship in spirit, capital S, and truth. He says, but for now, it's the Jewish mountain because salvation is of the Jews. But there's coming a time where you won't even go to that temple anymore. And he, he starts through his ministry revealing the reality that it's not even the physical temple. He speaks of his own body. Tear this temple down and in three days I will build it back again. And then we start realizing that as he ascends to heaven, the body of Christ that stays behind, the temple of the Holy Spirit, if you will, is now the church worldwide. It's not just you and just me. We're not all individual temples. We are one singular temple of the Holy Spirit. And thus we glorify God. Because that's what temples do. That's why the Holy Spirit indwells believers now, because the temple is once again mobile, skin-covered, and glorifying God. That's who we are. We're called in the book of 1 Peter, living stones in the temple of God. Remarkable terminology. If you want to read that ahead of time, it's 1 Peter chapter 2. But have that be your homework. We will get there in this class at some point. But for right now, let's stick with this. This is where... A huge switch takes place in the book of Acts, verse 19. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. You see that? But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Now Luke is writing this after everybody knows that the Gentile church is reality. Luke himself, who's writing this, is a Greek Christian who's traveling with the Apostle Paul many years later when he's writing this. And so you got to understand, he's telling how the Gentile church came into existence. How it was that everyone who was aiming at the Jews 
was fine. You can go to the circumcised party. You can spread the gospel to anyone. But the reality is that God's also going to send people to the Greeks and there's nothing you can do to stop it. They were preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. He's speaking of Greeks now. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. and They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now this is right outside north of Israel. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man. Notice why he's able to recognize this. Full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Greek, foreign Gentiles were given the name Little Christs. It was derogatory at first because from the Hellenistic worldview, from the Greek mindset, This is absolutely ridiculous to be worshiping someone who's risen from the dead. In the Greek worldview, that's atrocious. Death is the release in the Greek worldview, where we get to join the ether of the universe. And so for for them to be called little Christ is a derogatory term. And Christians looked at that, the disciples looked at that and were like, that term fits. (laughs) We'll use that to apply to ourselves, no problem. You mean it derogatorily? We mean it in true service to Christ. Now, notice they're not called Jesusites or anything like that. They're called Christians. Christ is Messiah, anointed one. You Greeks are following a risen, which resurrection in Greek thought is bad, Jewish Messiah. You're just, you're just little Jews now. Derogatory. <laughs> the Christians are like, fine, fine. We follow a Jewish Messiah. That's just fine. In those days, verse 27, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, Now, down, it's going north, but Jerusalem is very highly elevated. That's what that's referring to. Uh, In our language, we use down for south. Theirs is actually just elevation. So it's actually north. Uh, They came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus and stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And yes, that is a historical reality. Uh, Here, the Holy Spirit involved with prophecy. Also, doesn't happen much where the future is foretold with specificity. But here again, we're dealing in the earliest days of the church. There's going to be very unique things that the Holy Spirit's going to be doing. Uh, Not only do we see things like the undoing of the Tower of Babel at uh, the day of Pentecost, but we also see uh, the undoing of sicknesses, the undoing of paralysis, the unloosing of tongues, the opening of the eyes of the blind. We, We see all aspects of these things. Um, And here we see prophetic, and now prophecy is typically not about the future. Prophecy is typically about calling people to repentance and saying, if you do not repent, this is what will happen. And that's the aspect of the future. And here he's just directly expressing the future with great specificity, similar to God doing the same thing in Isaiah 40 through 48, specifically in Isaiah 45. So the disciples determined... In response to this prophecy of Agabus, that everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Do you realize what just happened? All of a sudden, the Greek Christians are serving the church in Jerusalem. 
not because they owed it to them in any necessarily you know, payback format, but because out of Christian love. And this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. Breaking down again, more dividing walls between Jews and Greeks. Why? Because we both are saved by the same God. We are both saved by the same Messiah, the same anointed one. This is not going to be something that uh, changes. We'll even see at the close of one of the book of, uh, to the Corinthians that Peter, or excuse me, that Paul is writing to them and saying, look, take up a collection and send it to Jerusalem. There's a significant famine going on in Jerusalem. A remarkable thing. Because again, the, the whole point is that we are going to be in service to one another and that it's not going to be something where we just go, well, we'll let those Christians over there, they're the Jewish church, we're the Greek church, and the Holy Spirit says, no, no, no. No, there's one church. There's one church. And it would do well for us to remember this today. There's a lot of people that, you know, think really highly of Messianic Jews. We are all one church. Now, do they understand things much easier than us in accordance with the, the pictures and the types and the shadows of the Old Testament connected to Christ? Oh yeah, great. We get to learn from one another. That's marvelous. But they are not closer to God than we are. We are all brought under the same blood of Christ. And this is what... This is what is being displayed here. Now, again, every time we see the Holy Spirit, we got to be looking for where is life happening. Because that's what happens when the Holy Spirit speaks and moves and acts. We should be looking for life somewhere because that is his main role. Life giver. And so why is he telling us about the future? What is it about famines? People die. And so he's telling it to the church. Just a practical thing. Now, does he always do this? Nope. No, many famines have overtaken the church throughout history and the Holy Spirit didn't tell us about it. But here he's expressing one of the aspects of this is that in the near future, there's going to be a great famine throughout the world. Prepare for that. That doesn't mean that every single time there's a famine, the Holy Spirit is required. Nope. It just means at this moment, there there was something about God in the way he was working that wanted to preserve part of the early church in a specific way. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah. Without distinction. And this is one of the, one of the great things about this famine throughout the whole world. If, if death is going to hit everyone without distinction, then the Holy Spirit's going to ensure that life will hit all of his Christians without distinction. Uh, I think this is one of those places, exactly as you're saying, that, that drove the church closer together because that's what suffering always does. Uh, it always drives people closer together. Um, it, you know, evil in the world tends to do that. Um, and famines are a natural evil, they're called. Uh, it doesn't mean that they are brought about by somebody's actions. It just means that it is not the way it should be. There should be a world of life. And yet, it's a fallen world. And so there are natural evils like famines. And so we see the Holy Spirit even interacting with that directly. Any other questions before we jump to chapter 13? Okay, let's go to chapter 13. Barnabas and Saul. If you're not familiar in the early church, one of the centers of the church was in Antioch. Uh, It was one of the first centers of the Greek-speaking church, um, and actually even throughout much of the first millennia of the church, 
the centers of the church in the east were Jerusalem and Antioch and Constantinople in about 300 years after this, and then uh, Alexandria, Egypt. Those four served as the centers of the church and also Rome in the west, Um, but that had some issues after the west fell. So those were the five centers of the church, and two of them are very close, Jerusalem and Antioch, and they're also the most ancient by far. Uh, Jerusalem and Antioch together, the Jewish church and the Greek church. They're not very far away from from each other, but both of them are going to learn how to serve one another directly uh, and care for one another. And that, that openness to crossing national and ethnic boundaries uh, for the sake of the gospel and watching the Lord go out and interact with people, not on the basis of becoming another culture, but simply on the basis of where they are and the Lord approaching them where they are, is something that the church throughout history, is required to learn the same lessons, right? It's, it's really hard if, if your entire experience is in a singular country to think of a church outside of what you're familiar with, right? Especially when they're natural enemies of the country in which you live. And we look at this and we go like, that doesn't make any sense. How is it that, you know, well, I mean, you got... Jews should just just been open to Gentiles becoming Christians. It should be pretty straightforward. Translate it to our time. The way we look at people who are Islamic. Our country, in a long way, tends to interact with them uh, with suspicion. But as Christians, we ought to be open to sharing the gospel to everyone, shouldn't we? And not just open, but eager. Uh, eager to share the gospel without distinction, Right? across all boundaries and borders, uh, with, without distinction, because the church is a singular church throughout the world. We should be readily sharing the gospel with someone who is Jewish, with someone who is Islamic, Hindu, doesn't matter. There, there's no requirement to be Jewish. There's also no requirement to be American or European or African or Asian or South American or any other such thing. That kind of stuff is not part of the gospel. And, and that had to be taught very specifically in the early church because those type of distinctions where God was specifically working were very often limited to the people of Israel for a long time. Sure. Sure. It's hard to want to go ahead and go out to them because they don't want anything to do with it. Correct. The Greeks didn't want anything to do with Jews either. And vice versa. But how are they going to learn? I mean, because, I mean, I've never heard of a Muslim converting to a Christian. I, oh, yeah. I've heard about Christians converting to, Muslim, to be, become Muslims. been a lot of Muslims coming to Christianity. Yeah. There's been quite a few. Yeah. Well, but in the end, it's up to the Spirit. Correct. If the Spirit moves, it doesn't matter where that person is, was, whatever. Correct. And that, that's what the apostles are learning throughout all of this, is that... We, we can't stand in God's way no matter where he goes. And so all that's given to us is to faithfully give the message. It's not up to us to figure out the results. I promise. I, I had people that sat in a church where I preached. They sat in a church nonstop every Sunday for six years straight and were decidedly not Christians. Man, did it make me try to clarify the gospel over and over and over again to make sure that some hole in their understanding of it. Nope, they knew the gospel forward and back. No interest. Came to church every Sunday. That, 
that humiliates the pastor, first of all. And it, it makes me understand that it really isn't about how much you know. It really isn't about what cultural uh, trepidations you have. At the end of the day, it is up to the Lord. Yes, sir. No, 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 you're thinking of the Torah. The Torah, not the Quran? No, no, no. The Quran is uh, uh, a writing from um, Muhammad in the 600s, 600 years after Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually sh- even shorter than the New Testament. It's not that long. Um, and no, the, you know, the Quran has nothing to do with any parallels in the Old Testament. Um, they all, they'll say that they have... Uh, you know, the different expression of this, but I'll teach on the Quran someday. Um, but let's stick here, right? So what, what they're having to learn, uh, look at verse 1 in chapter 13, right? Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, uh, who was called Niger. Uh, this would be someone from Niger. This is uh, uh, Saharan African. Uh, Lucius the Cyrene, uh, Manan, uh, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Now, this is, this is a really interesting group of people, completely all mixed up from all over the place. Uh, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, now again, we have a verbal, audible speaking of the Holy Spirit. Very rare. There's only about four instances that I know of. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So that's the center of the Mediterranean Sea, right? At least in the uh, east. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. Uh, uh, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Paul and Barnab- Saul and Barnabas and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul who was also called Paul, this is where the name changes, filled with the Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Man, that is one way to address someone. You will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. No, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now that's a fascinating little story. What in the world just happened? We got a guy who's working magic. It's very hard for our modern sensibilities to look at this and go, oh yeah, magic, I'm sure. What is he like, you know, you know doing some card tricks? And No, legitimate magic. It was well attested to in the ancient world that people were capable of doing things before the cross of Christ in the immediate history thereafter. Things that were supernatural that weren't from God. Demon possession being one of them that holds up very well in the scriptures. Uh, 
This was something that happened drastically before the coming of Christ and quickly pittered away after the coming of Christ, which is why we live in a world that doesn't think magic is real. Um, But it was. And there were things that they were doing that simply were astounding. It shows up in the biblical text, if you remember, uh, in the book of Exodus. You remember when the plagues were being done, what all the Egyptian magicians were doing? What were they doing? They were duplicating miracles. Now, to the same degree, no, but they were able to turn sticks into snakes. They were able to turn water into blood and blood back into water. Things like this, which break the natural order, were not just things being done by God and the Holy Spirit and his prophets. There were things that were happening in the world that we don't like to admit because it changes and challenges our cultural lens. But the reality is well attested. In fact, Jesus even talks about it, that the Pharisees, in attempting to do their exorcisms, used things like herbs and spices and incantations, and even says that some of the Pharisees' sons were able to actually cast out demons with this. This is using magical rites. And what was astounding to everyone was not that Jesus was able to cast out demons, but that he was able to cast out demons with a word. Nobody can do that. It's not even incantation. He just instructs them, and they are required to obey him. That's God. Only God can do that. Everyone else can try some herbs and mystical incantations, and maybe it works every once in a while. Even Jesus said it worked every once in a while. But with Christ, it worked every time. With the apostles, it worked every time, except when they were in the ministry of Jesus, because they hadn't had the Holy Spirit yet. Jesus sends them out, remember this story? To go out uh, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and casting out demons, and then they find their limit. And they come back going, uh, we tried to cast this one out by your name, and uh, he just didn't listen to us. He's like, oh yeah, this is a different category of demons. They only come out with prayer and fasting. And they're just like looking at each other like, what are we supposed to do with this? How do we do this? Now, we don't see this in our society, and so we kind of look at that and go, yeah, okay, magician, we hear that. Legitimately so. Let that settle in your minds when you see then how the Holy Spirit interacts so uniquely to those who are doing this. We'll see it again when they come to Ephesus, uh, and the Holy Spirit will do the most flashy things in Ephesus. Why? Ephesus was the center of magical study in the ancient world. And you'll see it when we come to Ephesus in the book of Acts because the Holy Spirit, it says in the book of Acts, was doing unbelievable things in Ephesus. Paul brushed by a handkerchief and they could carry away the handkerchief and hit people with it and it would heal them. Yes, that's in the book of Acts. Like, there's things that break down with regards to this because we don't really fully appreciate the severity of what the Holy Spirit was fighting against. Enter this man, Bar-Jesus, a Jewish false prophet. He was uh, with the prone council there, uh, who was a man of intelligence. Um, he wanted Barnabas and Saul, the pro council it is, to, to come and so he could hear the word of God. But this magician uh, was opposing them, seeking to turn the pro council away from the truth. And Saul, uh, who was also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit and was able to look intently at him Look at where he says the power of these things come from in verse 10. Son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, what is that a callback to? 
Proverbs, which was a foreshadowing of this event. Who was the person that did the exact opposite, making straight the paths of the Lord? It was John the Baptist. He was the one that was to set straight. He was going to come in the, um, in the spirit and nature of Elijah and make straight the paths of the Lord. This was foretold in Isaiah. It was told again in Matthew about John the Baptist. It was told again in Luke. All of these things saying John the Baptist, who in utero had the Holy Spirit, very unique, uh, was sent specifically to make straight the paths of the Lord. And now we see there's false prophets because John the Baptist was the chief prophet at the very end. And now we have a false prophet looking to do the other thing, making crooked the paths of the Lord, making it difficult for the gospel to go out to the world, interrupting the preaching of the gospel, right? This, this kind of stuff is not small beans. This is the exact opposite of what the Lord is doing. And so this guy who has all of these abilities, whatever they are, uh, verse 11 Paul says to him, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, this, this is simply remarkable. Now we have the Holy Spirit making someone blind. Right? We just had a reversal of what Jesus was doing in his ministry through the Holy Spirit, which is making a blind man see. Now we see the other side. You set yourself against me in order to protect the message of life that goes out in this world. I will make you blind. Which means the very opposite of things can certainly befall on people in order to ensure that the gospel will go out. This man specifically, for some reason, verse 12, then the pro-council believed. Oh, that's why. There's the life. Darkness and mist and blindness is seen as an aspect of death. And so we will cast that onto this false prophet in order to save the proconsul. And this is how it goes. And every single time we come to the salvation of the Lord in Scripture and the works of the Holy Spirit, almost always when we see life coming out of something, we see death elsewise. And they are almost always in concert with one another. We'll see it this morning in, in uh, the morning service. We're going to be back in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, and see the night of Passover. The Lord in saving the firstborns of the house of Israel because of the blood on the doorposts and on the lintels will kill all the firstborn sons in every single house in the whole country of Egypt, from the house of Pharaoh down to all the way to the lowliest slave. Life and death. You say, well, how does it work with us? In order to save us, did God kill somebody? Christ. There is no salvation without the shedding of blood. There is no life without death. We saw it even back in the Garden of Eden. You need to cover your nakedness. Fig leaves aren't enough. We'll kill something in your place and clothe you with the skins. Everyone looks at that and say, you know, oh, in the day you eat of it, you shall not surely die. Yeah. Something died in their place. Something died that day. In a sense, they did die. Their death was transferred to another, and sacrifices made. And then we understand that that's how God is going to continue to work about this thing.
Did we start the Council of Jerusalem? Yes, we do. Go to Acts chapter 15. Now, I'm not, I'm, this is not a class teaching the whole book of Acts, obviously. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. And so we are skipping sections and stories. Uh, go back and read the book of Acts. It's a remarkable read. You can read it in a single day um, and, and just get the setting for all of these things. But the, the disagreements about how to handle Gentiles in the church rose to such a fever pitch and disagreement that the whole church had to come together, all the apostles and everyone, to hear the matter. Because up until now, they're hearing whispers of this and that, and there's disagreement and dissension and discord in the church. Because while Peter may have figured out everything, right? Maybe Paul and Barnabas had figured out that there's a message to the Gentiles and all this stuff. They never got together and said, what are we going to do? Because this is massively difficult. Notice this, the council is not held in Antioch, it's held in Jerusalem. The primary issue was with Jewish Christians, learning how to think well about Gentile Christians. There were people that were traveling, there were people that were traveling to uh, distant lands and trying to uh, give Jewish Christianity to Gentile Greeks. And saying, in order for you to follow Christ, you have to be circumcised. You have to honor our Jewish customs and our practices. You have to join the commonwealth of Israel in order to have the Jewish Messiah. And so to answer this question, they bring together all the apostles, who are all Jewish, all to Jerusalem, who, if you didn't know, is all Jewish, to the church in Jerusalem, which is all Jewish, so that they can sit down and say, how are we going to handle this? We need to write letters out to the Gentile Christians to let them know what is it that the Jerusalem church says. Because what they're getting is not what we're saying. That's the setting of this, Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the claim that's out there being made by some Jewish Christians speaking to Greek unbelievers and to believers. Now that causes great consternation in the Greek church, doesn't it? Oh my gosh, Jesus isn't enough? We have to be circumcised too? Even after receiving the Holy Spirit, we have to then go out and do these Jewish rites? Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, (laughs) I love the biblical way of saying that. Basically, they just argued their mouths off against this nonsense. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, again, to the south, but up in um, altitude. Thank you. Uh, I was going to say ascension, and that's not right. Uh, They're going up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, that would be the church uh, in, um, in Antioch, most likely. Uh, Phoenicia, they pass through Phoenicia, that would be Tyre and Sidon, and Samaria, that would be Sychar and all these other places. They go down, um, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now, that's great. They're just telling them the stories of what's been happening. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, if you've ever looked at the Old Testament law and go, oh, I think that applies to the Christian, welcome to Acts 15. Because your answers will be found herein. 
Because if we are to look at the book of Leviticus and say, hey, I got an idea. Let's apply that to our lives right now. I'm not going to eat lobster. You know, I'm not going to get tattoos. I'm not going to do all, all these rules that were made specifically for Israel uh, 3,000 years ago. And I'm going to apply that to us now. Read about the Jerusalem Council. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now he's going to tell the story of Cornelius again. This is like the, the arrow through the heart of all the theory of these, uh, of these uh, Christians who are also Pharisees. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit in the exact same way as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. He cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? (laughs) Now, those are fighting words in a Jewish church, by the way. By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. None of us have been able to fulfill the law. Why are you going to go back to the law which brings death instead of Christ who brings life? You're going to kill him. Not even our fathers could bear that. We couldn't bear that. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. End of argument. They're really, it's an airtight case because the Holy Spirit has already done all of this. He did this to uncircumcised people that didn't keep a single law of Moses. Because they're not Jews. The law was sent to the Jewish people. To be a testament. Now speaks of the moral clarity of God and all sorts of things that we can glean from Leviticus. Marvelous book. We can glean all sorts of moral aspects from that. But as far as for applying that law across cultures and insisting that Greeks become Jews in order to be saved is heresy. And that's exactly what they're going to determine here. To insist that is putting God to the test. You are placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that no one is able to bear. By the way, this happens in the modern church as well. When we start making up rules and saying, it's not enough for you to follow Christ, here's your set of rules. You need these two. No, we don't. The entire assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas, they listened to Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James, this is Jesus' younger brother. James replied, brothers, listen to me. By the way, James is a very new convert. He did not believe in the Lord Jesus during his lifetime. This is like his first year as a Christian. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, that's Peter, to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets all agree, just as it is written. Now now here, James is going to go back to the Old Testament, and he's going to override all the Jews in their thinking here. And so here he'll actually take them uh, back to the book of Amos. He says, Here's the quote. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. There's one of those little places where God was showing that something grand is going to happen in his relationship with the Gentiles. 
And so what James is saying is this is not a new plan that God has made. He's told us about this and we just couldn't see it until he did it in front of us. Therefore, he says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things that are polluted by idols. That's for the sake of everyone. To stay away from sexual immorality, because that was the massive issue of their day. And from what has been strangled, there's a lot of debate on what that means, and from blood. And that is for the scruples sake, for their love of Jewish people. They just can't handle seeing that. Verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, amongst all the Gentile people and the believers, there's going to be Jewish Christians. You have to keep their issues in mind. They're going to have a real hard time with you just bringing Greek society straight into it. But we're not going to allow Jews to bring Jewish society straight to the Greeks either. Basically, love one another. Set aside for one another anything for the sake of unity in the gospel. If, and, and we will see this pan out throughout the New Testament. If, if you have a Christian brother or sister who's a vegetarian, for instance, and is, and is in a moral quandary about eating meat, don't walk up to him with a tomahawk steak chewing on it. Why? Why would you do this? Don't, don't flaunt these things. Eat in your own home. You can eat that steak in your own home. There's nothing wrong about it. But if they have an issue with it, will you just love your brother? Same thing for alcohol. Same thing for all manner of things. Same thing for um, uh, kosher things. If you have a Jewish brother that, that through his weakness cannot see beyond how he doesn't have to keep these legal rules anymore, don't invite him over it's for hot dogs and ham. Okay? Be wary of one another. Don't, don't, don't be careless one another and flaunting your cultures. Be careful with this. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They, they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading uh, men among the brothers with the following letter. Now here's the letter from the Council of Jerusalem. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers, who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, very far away. I mean, we're talking all the way up into Asia Minor. This is not just Antioch. This is deep into Greek territory. Greetings. <laughs> Since we have heard that some peoples have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no such instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. Farewell. That's not a long letter. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit to do these things. When they were sent off, verse 30, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, <laughs> now we get to learn more stuff, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off 
in peace by the brothers who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The center of Christianity is joined not only in Jerusalem, but now also in Antioch. And the Gentile church is given full, 100% green light. Move forward. You do not have to become Jewish in order to follow Christ. Notice that none of them were aiming at this. None of them from their culture wanted this. They were very resistant to the idea. In fact, many of the early Christians were very resistant to the idea that God would save Gentiles in the same way as he saved Jews. But here, the Holy Spirit, and through the apostles as well, makes very clear to them that this is the way that it's going to work. It's not that I'm just going to save Jews that are in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. It's that I'm going to save anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Jew, Gentile, and don't show distinction. Next week, we're going to pause the book of Acts. Because it is at this time that two very important books are written in the New Testament. And we're going to, as we've been going through chronologically, we have to stop at this part of the narrative because after the Council of Jerusalem, James, the brother of the Lord, is the pastor in Jerusalem, writes a book to the Jews all throughout the world. It's called the book of James. We're going to look at that. And also, Paul, after this Council of Jerusalem, writes a letter way past Antioch and sends it to all the churches in Galatia, the book of Galatians, and addresses this exact issue and he does it with the highest amount of sarcasm that is in any book of the Bible, period. Uh, and we will see that because we're going to walk through the whole book of Galatians. That's going to be one of the first things we do. There's, uh, there's much less reference in the book of James to the Holy Spirit. But I want you to at least be aware that both of those books come out of the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, it's really important when you're reading Galatians to know its setting. And that's what's going on. Because the tone in the book of Galatians is... Uh, insane. <laughs> it's, it's on a whole nother level. Um, he, he's over there talking about people chopping off body parts and wishing for it and uh, th- it, calling them stupid. Like There's all sorts of stuff going on in Galatians. So we're going to settle down the book of Galatians next week um, because that's one of the things that comes out of the Council of Jerusalem. Any thoughts here at the end this morning? We covered a lot of ground um, and if there's any question or any point of order, that'd be good to hear. Yep. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there was talk. I know there is an Islamic community not too far from here. Um, there was talk at some point of maybe them, you know, purchasing a, 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 a place in town or something like this. And I was like, that sounds great. And a number of people I was talking to were like, no, that doesn't sound great at all. What are you talking about? I was like, evangelism opportunity in our backyard. How wonderful. What a great thing to be able to do. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Let's address the aspect of the gospel and what's going on. Make sure they understand the gospel that they claim to be rejecting. And the same goes for everyone in our towns. I don't care what background. We are quickly going into a time where this country is not going to have any concept of biblical understanding. We're pretty much there. We're going to have to be open to evangelizing people that don't look like us or remind us of us. Good. That'll help us grow up. Okay, let's pray and then we'll Prepare our hearts for service this morning. Father, we're grateful. We are grateful that your Holy Spirit taught us these things. 
as Gentiles, we are recipients of uh, the work of the Jewish Messiah without becoming Jews ourselves. For this we are eternally grateful, for this we are, um, we are challenged, and we are welcome, and that is a remarkable thing to us. We do pray, Father, that we be open to sharing the gospel across every boundary that there is, because from every type of person, from every nation, your people will come. It's a remarkable thing for us to realize that at the end of the world, we see standing before the throne a group of people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and peoples, all glorifying God and the Lamb, and the Lamb's blood has purchased all of them. We're grateful for this, Father. We hasten the day with our prayers. We pray for it in your Son's name. Amen.